Welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. Um, and today we are going to be talking about Neil Woodford, um, which is a subject that many of our UK listeners will be familiar with. Um, many of our foreign listeners, maybe not so much. Um, but we have on the podcast today David Ricketts, who is something of a an expert on the subject, having actually written a book about Neil Woodford um, called When the Fund Stops, um, which is available now at your local bookshop or on Amazon if you don't have a local bookshop. David is the asset management correspondent at Financial News here in London um, and is the uh, first journalist we've had on the podcast. Um, So welcome to the show, David. Thanks very much for having me. An honour to be the, the first journalist on your podcast. No, no, it's it's uh, it's it's good to have have someone from the press on with a with a more objective outlook on on what's going on in asset management. Can you give us a quick summary? Because there'll be some people listening to this who are not in the UK, may not be that familiar with who Neil Woodford is. Can you just give us um, a quick summary of the of who is Neil Woodford and why he became famous and then subsequently infamous yeah absolutely so so neil woodford um i mean he was he was arguably the the, the most famous uh, retail fund manager in the uk uh and, and for very good reason i mean he had a good sort of uh, 25 year career with a firm uh, called invesco uh, which he started in the uh, in the late 80s um and anyone who would have put a thousand pounds with um, woodford when he started that firm in I think, 1988 would have had around £25,000 um, after after his 25-year tenure. So, so that's a pretty good return. I think any investor would be, would be very happy with that. So um, he really kind of made a name for himself or became an overnight success um, during the dot-com bubble uh, and that burst in, in, in sort of 2000. He was one of the few fund managers that, that wasn't really piling into technology and internet companies at the time. Um, he received a lot of lot of flack from um, financial advisors and some of his superiors, actually, at Invesco at the time, who were really questioning his decision not to take part in this kind of growing buzz around um, the tech sector. Um, and instead, he was someone who chose to stick by some of the familiar companies he'd held in his fund for, for many years, including tobacco stocks and other big kind of blue blue chip companies, blue chip companies that really kind of pay, paid off. Um, during his time there. Um, and obviously, when the, the, the dot-com crash came, um, Woodford was, was absolutely vindicated. And he um, achieved a sort of overnight success, if you like, and, and was uh, very well rewarded um, for that by his uh, his bosses at Invesco, a, a huge uh, sort of payout and bonuses, etc. He kind of replicated the same thing again during the, uh, the financial crisis. Um, he, he was someone who didn't hold any bank stocks at the time. Um, so he managed to escape um, a lot of the, the fallout when lenders like RBS were plunged into crisis. Um, so he was really seen as somebody who was, um, yeah, who, who managed to kind of escape all, all the kind of the, the, the market turmoil and had something of a Midas touch. And he earned this nickname, the, the Oracle of Oxford, uh, which was uh, kind of a reference to, to, to Henley, which is where um, Invesco had an office, which is where he was based, but also obviously referring to to Warren Buffett, who I'm sure many of you will know is, is referred to as the sage of Omaha, um, and one of the world's most um, successful investors. So he, um, yeah, he, he did very well at Invesco. He had a, a great career there and uh, amassed a huge following. Um, I think by the time he'd left 
Invesco, his, his two funds, the High Income and the Income Fund, I think oversaw more than 30 billion um, across those two funds. Um, that was a huge chunk of Invesco's overall assets, which I, I think at the time were around about 75 billion or so. So he was a, a huge um, a huge uh, component at Invesco. He pulled in a lot of money uh, for the firm, but uh, he decided to, to strike out on his own. Um, so in 2013, he announced uh, to the market he was leaving to set up his own his own venture, uh, Woodford Investment Management, with uh, his business partner, Craig Newman, who was uh, somebody who worked with him at Invesco. And yeah, the expectation was a lot of these, these Invesco clients would follow Woodford out of the door to his new outfit. And um, yeah, we can talk a bit about the kind of the, the, the success the fund launch had, etc. But but really, he kind of struck out on his own in 2014, um, had a huge success initially. And then after about three years or so, the, the cracks started to emerge, given he kind of strayed away from when, when I said he was focusing very much on blue chip companies, he started to stray towards more liquid and unquoted companies. Um, and yeah, that really kind of... Um, some great difficulties uh, as as investors wanted their money back because of performance issues and other things. Um, and that's kind of uh, when the downfall really started to happen, sort of three years after he'd uh, set up his own venture. If you're looking at this from a, you know, an investor's point of view, he had a methodology that worked. You know, It worked for him in 2001. It worked for him in 2008. What what was it? Do you think that that made him actually break from that? Because people are always saying, if you if you if you're successful with something, just keep doing it. Why why deviate from the path that has proved um, so profitable? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think it's one I'd love to I'd love to sit down and ask the man himself. But I think actually, you know, towards his end, at the end of his career in Vesco, there was evidence that he was starting to to dabble. In some of these uh, the, these less liquid companies, I mean, he started to make a, a few investments in, in unquoted stocks, uh, but in unquoted companies. Um, but um, it, it wasn't really seen as much of a concern, um, particularly to, to the financial kind of commentators and the people that we speak to in the press who kind of follow Woodford and its investment process. It was it was kind of a very small holding, if you like. Um, that said, it was enough to. Um, kind of get the the powers that be at Invesco um, concerned. And actually, they, they did set up a, a committee internally to start keeping a, a closer watch on what Woodford was doing when it came to investing in some of these uh, these kind of smaller companies. Um, and actually, that was something I think really that, that kind of pushed Woodford um, towards the decision to leave uh, Invesco ultimately because he had this um, really over in an organisation like Invesco, a big US focused firm. You, you will have an, an overbearing compliance function okay, you know, where there are going to be a lot of questions asked of you. Um, and by this point, towards the end of his career, you know, Woodford had, as you say, demonstrated success with his investment strategy. He, he'd been, been doing it for a long time. I don't think he really liked being asked questions about you know, why, why, are you, um, why are you investing in this company? What, what's your rationale for doing so? I think he thought, you know, I, I'm the top dog here. I'm the guy who knows what I'm doing. Just leave me to it. Uh, so he was certainly getting a lot more questions from his uh, his superiors about some of the, the companies that he was investing in. But yeah, I, I think that the question you asked there about why change his style, speaking to people that work with him, he, I think it was as simple as he thought he could replicate the success that he had at Invesco and um, yeah, simply do the same by, by investing in some of these smaller companies. Now, um, one of the things that happened when he left Invesco to set up his own firm, there was an appetite 
among uh, some of his uh, business partners to suddenly make more investments in these these younger companies, these unquoted uh, companies. He based himself in Oxford, where a lot of the kind of uh, bioscience and biomedical companies are based. So he was um, very much kind of located near some of these companies uh, that, that were kind of testing new ground and, and companies that were looking for investment. And um, yeah, that, I suppose the question that gets asked a lot is, well, you know, what was the due diligence done on, on some of these investments as well? And, and that, that's a question that that comes up again and again, because from, from people I've spoken to who work with Woodford in his new firm, there are lots of people banging on the door asking for investments. Um, you know, they obviously wanted to get Neil Woodford on board, and that would be a great, great thing for them to, uh, to publicise. And uh, yeah, the question really is, well, you know, was there enough due diligence done on some of these companies? And yeah, did, did Woodford really um, underestimate how difficult it would be replicating the success that he had investing in those large blue chip companies? You know, it simply wasn't, wasn't a transferable skill. And that, that's something I think he gets criticised for quite a lot. So yeah, I, th- I think it came down to, to simply that. He, he thought he had the success and um, it would be just a, a case of doing, doing the same uh, with, with some of these newer companies. And it's obviously a very different investment skill set that is needed uh, to, to invest in, in unquoted. How much of the, his success in the retail market with private investors do you think can be attributed to media coverage and how much can be attributed to the fact that he seems to have had a lot of traction with the wealth managers and the independent financial advisors in the UK? Yeah, so I think that's, again, that's another question I get asked a lot is, is the role of the media you like in, in building up Woodford, but also kind of, you know, bring him down as well to some extent. I, I think when we, if we look back to when the announcement was made that, that Woodford uh, was leaving Invesco, I mean, it was, a, it was a huge story at the time. I mean, it was picked up by all the financial press. And, it, you know, no surprise, I think Woodford was, was featured in the, in the sort of personal finance pages, uh, the weekend papers quite extensively he was someone who was seen to deliver for investors and um, yeah he was kind of a favorite among among kind of personal finance journalists when when he announced that he was setting up his own fund so the the equity income fund which was the flagship uh, fund that the first fund he launched in in june 2014 you know he, he managed to negotiate this this exclusive fee arrangement with, with hargreaves lansdowne so you know it meant that that hargreaves was the cheapest platform for you to gain access to woodford's new fund essentially um, now there was there was heavy promotion around the fund's launch. It was it was backed by Peter Hargreaves, one of the platform um, founders. Um, it was also um, backed by Mark Dampier, the, the head of investment research uh, at uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, and even Hargreaves Lansdowne's own multi-manager funds. You know those which invest in funds that are run by the managers. They were also piling into into Woodford's new fund as well. So there was a lot of buy-in, if you like, from, from, from Hargreaves Lansdowne. It was very heavily promoted on, on that platform. And it also featured very heavily on their um, influential wealth one of 50 list. So it was given, given the highest prominence um, possible, essentially. And I think in total, Woodford's first fund, the equity income fund, raised 1.6 billion during, during the offer period. So it was the most successful new fund launch ever in the UK. Um, so it gives you an indication about you know the appetite to, to get into this fund and the kind of traction that he got even you know, from from the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne publicising it and, and promoting it on their own platform. In terms of the, the kind of media uh, success or the media kind of relationship, if you like, yeah, I think when things were going well, yeah, Woodford was kind of riding high and the press were, were certainly giving him an easy ride. I think um, you know by 
by sort of May 2017, which was kind of three years after he'd launched his new business, he was running in excess of 15 billion uh, pounds across the whole business. Um, you know, just over 10 billion of that was was in the flagship equity income fund. And that kind of May 2017 period turned out to be the pinnacle of the business. I think after that point, that's when when things really started to take a turn for the worse. But yeah, I think I think the media did did certainly play a role in, in helping to build Woodford up. And I think actually, you know, in some in some respects, we're probably a little bit guilty of, of not really flagging some of the concerns earlier on as well. I know that uh, from conversations I had with people I speak to regularly for, for comments on various fund managers when when the cracks did start to emerge three and a half years into his into his new business it was kind of seen as well this is just a bump in the road you know this is something that neil woodford will be able to get over um, and those are kind of consistent messages that i was i was getting from from kind of the the market experts if you like i speak to but then you know having said that there were a few a few journalists who were it was certainly probing a lot deeper than, than some others, my, you know, myself included. Um, you know, and then we're sort of taking a deeper look under the bonnet and sort of looking at some of the companies and the quality profile of, of some of the firms that, that Woodford was investing in, really kind of raising raising concerns that if things really do take a turn for the, for the worst, then actually this this is a fund that, that's really going to struggle to pay back investors. Um, so uh, I suppose the short answer to your question is, yeah, absolutely. The media did play a role in helping to build up Woodford and there was a lot of excitement around his new fund launch and yeah I think all that kind of played into the hysteria around you know we, we've got to get in into this this new fund um, early on because this guy is going to shoot the lights out when, when he gets going. Again looking at that shift into sort of small cap tech stocks and biotech stocks if you look at a successful biotech manager and we've had we've had we've had one on this podcast the impression they give is of um, somebody who's very well versed in life sciences markets and in the dynamics of the biotech space and they're usually supported by quite a large team of other specialists and consultants and people who really understand that market to a lesser extent same case as technology here you've got someone who was a basically made their name as a big large cap stock picker suddenly going into an area which is really highly specialist did he have any kind of prior track record in something like biotech or small cap tech stocks? Or, or was it just a case that he, he'd been so successful, he thought, how hard could it be? I can just get you know, any market I touch, I can apply the same, the same rules and I'll make money in it. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably what you've, you've just said, actually. Yeah, I think actually he, he did think I've been so successful doing what I've been doing for so long. How, how difficult can it be to replicate that success uh, in, in a kind of a new area? And you're actually absolutely right. I think when you when you do speak to people that specialize in, in kind of biotech and, um, and life sciences and, and, and other companies that are very focused and very niche, yeah, they are absolutely supported by a, a very strong research team who knows that sector inside out and kind of has the and have the credentials and the research capabilities to kind of spot good companies and ask the right questions i think actually i remember speaking to somebody about this and you know they're saying look to, to invest in some of these biotech companies you need people with phds and, and kind of um you know, specialist degrees and, and kind of knowledge in this area but you know, there was none of that kind of uh, at woodford's new firm again he was very he was supported by a i don't want to say sort of a generalist team but but you know this was a team that that largely followed him from invesco these were salespeople and, and people that, that worked with him for years um, that walked out the door with him 
um, who had no prior knowledge uh, or experience investing in this this new area. So you're absolutely right. I think he, he thought, um, yeah, I, I've done so well up to this point. How, how difficult can it be to invest in in a in a sector that offers such such big rewards as well? I think this was the other thing that, that life sciences was kind of seen as an area that, that would offer huge potential uh, returns. I think he just thought maybe I can, I can replicate the success I've had over over 25 years. Um, I think actually when when he announced the um, the portfolio of his of his new fund in in 2014, you know there were a lot of companies in there that were kind of traditional blue chip companies, Glaxo and various others that that we would have expected to see. There were a couple of companies in there that maybe gave an indication that his new firm would venture into this new area, but I don't think anyone really expected Woodford to, to venture so heavily into into the unquoted. So I remember speaking to to, to John Chatford Roberts at Jupiter. So even you know, a large city institution who had hundreds of millions of pounds tied up in the fund, um, who backed Woodford right from the start. I mean, their expectation was that, okay, maybe there'll be a handful of unquoted companies in that fund. But I think by the time they'd left, I mean, it would it had grown to a number they, they, they really hadn't envisaged. So it came as a bit of a surprise to them, the, the, the kind of route that Woodford took in the end. And this was a large city investor that really kind of lost confidence in, in Woodford quite early on. I think it was sort of two or three years after they'd made the initial investment, they decided to take out large chunks of money from him um, because they could see that he was kind of venturing off course and, and taking taking a route they didn't really feel comfortable with. And presumably that if you're a larger fund manager or a larger investor as well, you are concerned if if there are more and more illiquid or unquoted stocks um there's a risk management question there as well because what if you need to get out of that fund for whatever reason its liquidity profile has has changed you know it's not what you expected it to be and i guess even if he's delivering on the numbers at the same time you just don't want to have that much money as a bigger investor tied up in a fund like that yeah, that's absolutely right. I think you know a lot of these city investors who, who did pull money from from the fund, it, it all became public knowledge maybe a, a month, two months or so after they'd they, they'd made the withdrawal. Because again, their concern is that if they got such a large amount of money in a fund like Woodford's, who's got such a you know, big retail following, if anyone gets wind that they are pulling such huge sums of money uh, from that fund, again, you're going to spook all the retail investors and think, okay, what? Why is this large? institution investor pulling loads of money from this this fund manager that's been delivering for so long maybe there's concern that, that maybe we should pull our money as well and that was something that that maybe we can, we can talk about kind of the spiral uh, kind of death spiral for, for the woodford fund uh, later on but yeah th- these were large city firms that were pulling chunks of money you know tens of millions of pounds um at a time from the fund because they were concerned about yeah as you say liquidity management so if the fund reaches a crunch point where it's unable to pay back investors they didn't want to be in a position that, unfortunately, you know, three hundred thousand retail investors are in now, where the fund is locked and they can't access their money. So, a lot of the city investors saw the writing on the wall essentially uh, and got out um, pretty early on and had the kind of advantage, I suppose, in that in that sense um, over the retail segment. This is sort of symptomatic. I mean, I've seen this happen again and again and again. The symptomatic of the the star fund manager where you have a single individual who is considered to be um you know the ace the ace stock picker um marketing teams build a build a sort of legendary status around this you've already mentioned warren buffett um but you know warren buffett does continue to deliver consistently and and he has you know pe- other people around him as well of course 
Do you think that that the Woodford, what's happened with Woodford, is is kind of a, another nail in the coffin of this single manager cult within fund manage, management, and that more and more firms are trying to move away from this and and have at least two people, if not more, responsible for funds? Because I can see with many of the like in, in the listed investment trust sector, frequently you see there are at least two managers responsible for the portfolio. So you can't say we're just the success of the fund is just based around one individual. Do you think this is, we'll, we'll see fewer of these kind of stories going forward? I think, I think so. I think you're right. I think it probably is another nail in the coffin of the, the kind of star manager cult, if you like. I, th- I think it was on its way out initially before this all happened anyway. I think if you go back to uh, somebody like uh, you know, Bill Gross at PIMCO, when he left PIMCO, um, again, a huge flood of money left the firm uh, with him. So it was kind of, you know, it was seen as a key man. He was a key man risk, essentially. You know, he left the firm. He was responsible for pulling in billions of dollars uh, into, into, the, into the flagship fund he managed there. He leaves and then all that money kind of flows out the door with him. Um, I think that was kind of the first indication that actually people start to take notice. Think, OK, well, if we have if we have star managers, then maybe we need to manage this risk a bit better. I think we had a, another similar situation here in the UK when, when Richard Buxton, he left uh, Schroeder's, again, seen as a, as a staffer manager at the uh, Schroeder's. That fund that he managed, again, suffered heavy withdrawals when he left. I, I think that was kind of another indication that, that maybe the staffer manager culture in the UK was, was on its way out. But I think you're absolutely right. I think firms now are certainly keen to emphasise teams rather than individuals. And I think you get that a lot in in, internally with firms whenever you, you speak to, to that to asset managers they're keen to talk about the culture of their firm and it's not all about it's not about one person it's about the the entirety of the firm that the teams that work within the firm the investment teams the, the risk and compliance function the support around the fund manager the analysts every, everyone else so i think there are the, kind of the, the lessons that the that asset managers have learned from this is to not place too much focus when it comes to marketing products on individuals but yeah certainly focus on on the teams uh, rather than, than key people. It's one of the things that, that Hargreaves Lansdowne have, have also learned from. I think they've they've realised actually that they overhauled their research process as a result of all this. Uh, one of the things they have now put into place is they will place more emphasis on media coverage of certain managers. So Maybe naively, they didn't expect um, Woodford to to fall as quickly as he did. Um, they didn't probably anticipate a lot of the media coverage that he would get. It seems incredible in hindsight. Obviously, he received an incredible amount of media coverage during his downfall. But but I don't think they fully appreciated how how that would play into um, into the withdrawals and and how it would affect the the kind of the perception of of the fund manager. So. Um, I know that they have implemented various changes across their research process, and I think you know the, the kind of media profile of, of individuals is also now taken into account as well. Having said that, I, I've just said you know we're, we're moving away from this this star culture. Um, you know there are examples where there are still managers who are kind of key individuals who, who who certainly still command a huge retail following. So, big example here in the UK at the moment is, is Terry Smith. You know he is someone who is you know, he's the the, the best selling. Um, fund manager here in the UK he has a huge following uh, of retail investors. Uh, continues to pull in huge sums of money. Yeah, he, he gains a lot of attention as well for his commentary. He, he's someone who's very outspoken, not afraid to air his views. But I think he's 
yeah, he, he's kind of wary of of kind of going down down the same road as Woodford, uh, not not in terms of performance, but I think he's starting to talk, talk a bit more about succession planning, who within Fundsmith may replace him uh, eventually. So he's he's sort of giving indications to investors that you know it's not all about me, Terry Smith. I, I have a team of people working here with me who are ready to kind of take over when I when I retire, whenever that might be, um, and I can pass on the baton. When, when I need to. So there was kind of support in place uh, when that needs to happen. So basically there was a stampede. The stampede starts, um, more and more money gets redeemed out of the uh, Woodford Fund. And then eventually um, you end up in a situation where they've had to suspend the fund and there's lots of money still sitting in the fund, lots of private investors uh, waiting for their money to come back to them. Presumably someone is still trying to sell some of the assets um, that are still tied up in the fund. Do you think that they will ever be sort of fully fully liquidated or just the last ones out the door, including many smaller investors, are just going to have to take the hit on this? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, this is you know, nearly three years on now uh, since the fund was, was suspended. And yeah, investors are still waiting for final or you know, the, the final payments, if you like, from uh, from Link, who are just for those who aren't aware, who Link Link are, so they are what is known as the authorised corporate director of of Woodford's um, equity income fund. So they're the kind of body that that oversaw the fund and um, were meant to uh, you know, ensure that Woodford was sticking to to to, to the rules and was following compliance, etc. And that was you know, Link. Link actually were the the regulated or the body that was answerable to the FCA. So so that's that's one point to to just make clear. Um, and also, it was Link's decision back in in 2019 to to suspend uh, the fund. Um, so any investors who um, who had money with Woodford would have been contacted by Link with, with notification that the fund was being suspended. Six months later, in October 2019, they made that decision to to close the fund because they felt that Woodford hadn't positioned it well enough to reopen. So. Yeah, so 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 just go, if I just go back a little bit, just to, to explain that point as well, I think it, that's pretty important. When when the fund was suspended in in 2019, it, it was prompted really because um, one of his large investors, Kent County Council, um, his only um, uh, sort of pension um, client, if you like, had uh, about 250 million pounds tied up in the fund. They they've been Having meetings with Woodford for several several months in the run up to, to June nine, June twenty nineteen uh, you know, about concerns they were having with, with performance etc., but they decided they'd had enough and they wanted their their two hundred and fifty million pounds back. Now it was seen that that would be a, a huge sum of money to redeem in one go, and that the fund had to reposition itself to more liquid companies in order to raise money to pay back Kent County Council that money. So the fund was. Was suspended in, in June 2019, and the kind of process was was begun then that um, Woodford would reposition his his portfolio. He would he would sell down some of those um, less liquid holdings and buy more more kind of stock, if you like, in in the big blue chip or FTSE 100 companies, highly liquid, meaning that shares could be bought and sold relatively easily and quickly. Now that was initially the the initial. Um, suspension period was 28 days that was then pushed down the road another 28 days carried on and on and on um, and it got to about yeah it got to October 2019 and Woodford was due to give a presentation to to Link to um, update them on the progress he'd made on selling down his uh, his unliquid sorry his liquid holdings and positioning a portfolio to 
to, to large companies. He went along to the meeting and was never given the opportunity to present his case about why you know, why the fund should reopen and what the position would be if if the fund were to were to lift the suspension. So um, Link just decided they'd had enough. Uh, you know, there, there wasn't really any any kind of merit in, in reopening the fund. And decided it was in the best interests of investors to just wind up the wind up the fund completely, and then pay out all the money to, to those who are still in there. So, I, I think it's also important at this point to, to mention that not everyone in in the Woodford Fund wanted it to be liquidated. There would have been people in that fund who would have been happy to see it reopen. And indeed, Woodford had a few roadshows planned for the the November uh, and December of of twenty nineteen to go out and, and sort of public you know market market the fund when it reopened you know i think there's an expectation or an estimate in the market somewhere that you know, there may have been about 600 700 million pounds left in that fund if it were to reopen i mean obviously investors would have walked out of the door but not everyone would have walked out of the door there would have been people that would have stuck with him but um you know the, the big question is you know what what if woodford were allowed to reopen that fund would the walkout have been as huge as people were um, anticipating and would he have um, would he have managed to turn things around? We'll, we'll never know. But but yeah, even to this day, three years on, we are still waiting for um, yeah, final payments to be made to investors. Also importantly, we're still waiting for the FCA uh, to finalise or, or comment on the investigation that they kickstarted back in uh, 2019, which um, looks into the situation and the circumstances regarding its fund suspension as well. So. There are still a lot of questions to be answered. Uh, investors are wondering, A, when they're going to get their money back, but also when the FCA are going to announce any progress they've made on this investigation, provide some answers, I suppose, to what happened and uh, and some of the lessons that can be learned from all this. I don't want to put you on the spot, but why why do you think? the? Have you got any theories about why it's taking so long for the regulator to um, come back to us on this? It's a good question. And one I've asked people that know far more about this kind of process than I do. And I, so I've spoken to various lawyers who used to work at the FCA and are in, kind of involved in in the process of um, these kind of negotiations, essentially. It's, it's something we covered actually on, on, on Financial News. Um, but essentially, it's a very long process. So Link, um, sorry, so the FCA provided an update um, towards the end of last year saying that um, it was making good progress on the investigation, it had gathered all the evidence that it needed. It had spoken to people it had needed to speak to, both from Woodford's end, but also from from Link's end, but also other parties involved in in the management of the fund and the suspension, etc. And they gathered all the evidence. But putting everything together, they need to finalise a report. That report has to get then sent to the individual parties involved. The individual parties then have to make comments on that and send that back to the FCA. There's also a chance for them to make um, uh, oral representations or arguments, if you like, in, in response to the report. So in, in a nutshell, the whole thing can take from even the final report can take another three years. So I think if people were expecting the update from the FCA before Christmas, you know, that we're making good progress and we look like we've we, we've interviewed everyone, we've, we've said we'll interview and we're on, on track to come to a conclusion on this, um, if people are hoping that this will be wrapped up within a few months, I think they're going to be um, very disappointed. It could be at least you know, another year, two years, maybe even more before the whole thing gets sorted from, from the FCA side. So um, it's a very long and drawn out process, unfortunately, and one that, that doesn't really make the situation any easier for you know thousands of investors who are still locked in that fund. You know, a lot of 
ordinary people who had money in that fund for buying houses or you know weddings and holidays and home improvements all the kind of stuff that you you take for granted you know you can get your money back from from a fund by just dipping into it i think the expectation was that we'll put our money in the fund it would be a bit like an atm you know we can get the money back in at the drop of a hat i think a lot of people have been been severely burned by all this and uh yeah, it's it's been a very nasty experience. And uh, just finally, the sixty four thousand dollar question: um, Woodford himself, what's he doing now? And and should he be allowed to set up some kind of a successor fund group? Woodford made this um, shock announcement back in February last year. So he gave an interview to the uh, Sunday Telegraph where he said he was uh, he was making this comeback, this very bold, audacious comeback, which you know I, I think it got a lot of investors backs up because. Clearly, yeah, people are very, it's a very raw emotion still from, from people that have money in this fund. People had lost a lot of money. Um, and I think people think he, he shouldn't be allowed to, to even return to any career in fund management so soon or ever again, for that matter. Um, so he made this announcement that he was um, looking to set up a new venture based in, in Jersey. It would target only professional investors. It wouldn't be looking to... to to, to run any money for, for retail investors. Now, this this was something that got the the regulators well got them interested because they this was news to them. They they kind of responded to this article saying, well, you know, he wants to set up a, a an entity in Jersey. Well, he hasn't got the regulatory permissions to do so, and we haven't received any any applications from Woodford to do so. And um, they they kind of reminded him in sort of a roundabout way that in order to to have a business in Jersey, he needs the authorizations to do so. And I think the the FCA also came out and said that if he was looking to run money, he would also need the relevant permissions um, from the UK regulator as well. So I think the regulators weren't too impressed with his uh, his comeback announcement in the in the newspapers. Um, I think they would have liked a bit of a heads up or some kind of um, maybe um, request from from them that he had the permissions to do so before going out and making such a bold statement. But whether whether he should be allowed to do so, I mean that's yeah, I mean that, that's that's certainly a question that, that gets asked a lot. I think, yeah, there there are certainly a lot of investors who are very yeah are of the mindset he should go nowhere. He he should not be allowed to to run any money whatsoever, whether it's retail money, whether it's institutional money. His his career should be over essentially is what they is what they think. Obviously, there must be there must be people out there who are willing to give Woodford money for him to have this expectation that he can go and launch a new business. I mean, he, he's working quite closely with a firm called Acacia Research based out in, in the US. I think he's advising them or consulting with them. So he obviously has income coming from somewhere um, that he's able to support a small team. He set up a, a new business, Woodford Capital Management, which is based um, out in um, in Marlow in, uh, in, in Buckinghamshire. So he's got an office based out there. Again, it comes down to this FCA investigation. I think if once we have a, a clear indication what the regulator thinks about what what was it, how he was involved in the fund suspension and, and his role in that, you know, maybe he won't be allowed to to run money or given the chance to because he won't get the regulatory permission to do so, um, and that might be the kind of uh, kind of career end decided for him. But but personally, I think his career certainly in retail fund management is over. Um, I can't imagine anyone would give him money to, to run i think the only chance he really has is yeah maybe maybe he's got large institutional investors who who see something in him whether he works with them on a consulting basis or not or runs money for them I, I don't know but i think that's the only the avenue i can see that he will 
um, have any sign of success, any potential success, is is going down the institutional route. I know that he's been sort of touting investors in the Middle East and you know, trips to, to China, etc., to try and drum up interest for his for his new business. So I think um, you know, maybe he's even going further afield than the UK as well to try and uh, try and get some money to run. But uh, but certainly here in the UK, it's going to be a very difficult difficult challenge for him. Well, we'll have to have to wait developments then from the FCA because obviously this, this story hasn't entirely played out yet. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast this afternoon, David. That's been really informative. And uh, just as a reminder, if you want to um, find out more about the Neil Woodford saga, there is David's book, which is out, um, When the Fun Stops, which goes into it in a lot more detail than we've been able to do on the podcast. Um, but uh, thank you again, David, for, for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there. Mm-hmm.